Good morning. Our scripture reading comes from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. It'll be on the screen behind me, or it's on page 998 in the Pew Bible. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It was a great joy to be able to preach God's Word to you this morning. Uh, I am filling in for Sean, who was originally uh, scheduled to preach, but he came down with a bit of strep throat. If you can get a bit of strep throat, but he came down with that, so uh, I am stepping in. Advent, Christmas time. I love it. I love this time of year. The music the decorations, the movies, some of them, <laughs> but mostly the celebration of the coming into the world of the Word made flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ. But I also love the fact that there's going to be another Advent, a second Advent. The Apostle Paul addresses this in our text. He calls it the blessed hope. But he also uh, addresses the effect of that uh, in Romans chapter 8. In verses 18 through 25, we see why he calls it the blessed hope. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to humility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Done any of that groaning lately? I think so. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That's what we're doing. We are living between two advents, and that's what this text addresses a little bit, and that's what we want to look at this morning. Paul addresses both the first and the second advent, at least he refers to them, and how we should live. Notice that he writes that it was at the first advent that the grace of God appeared. 
So the operative word between the two advents is grace. We are living by grace. We are living with grace. We are living because of the grace of God. And so this morning, we're going to look at three points regarding God's grace from this text, Titus 2, 11 through 14. First of all, the person of grace. Grace is embodied in a person, the Lord Jesus. Secondly, the purpose of grace. And then thirdly, the practice of grace. That's where we get into the living between two advents. But before we look at each of those in turn, let's uh, go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Would you join me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your grace. Lord, all that we experience is the result of your grace through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every good and perfect gift that comes down from you, the Father of lights, Lord, is the result of grace. It is all because of your love and mercy through Jesus our Savior. And we praise you for that this morning. And Father, as we look at this great passage, we pray, Father, that your Spirit would teach us, that he would speak to us through your word, and that he would help us to both see and seize on the truth that is here for our lives. We pray, Father, that you would enable us, deliver us from the tendency at times to be mere, mere hearers of your word. Lord, we pray that we would be both hearers and doers of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, in the notice, the person of grace, Paul doesn't identify him here in verse 11, but, but he does a little bit later. Notice he says, for the grace of God has appeared. How did the grace of God appear? The grace of God appeared in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word has appeared is a word from which we get our English word epiphany. Uh, it comes at the, at the beginning of the sentence. And one of the things that you'll notice if you read this verse or these verses in different translations is they don't all translate it exactly the same in the same order of words. That's because the word order is a little bit challenging. Uh, it starts with the word appeared, appeared the grace of God. Uh, and that's to emphasize the fact that this is something that happened in history. This is a historical reality. And it reminds us of what Chandler read earlier from John chapter 1. John 1.17 says this, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Not just the birth of Christ, but his life, his atoning death, and his resurrection as well. Again, the Apostle Paul addresses this in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He writes in verses 9 and 10, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That word again, appearing. Who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, it's not like grace didn't exist before the word was made flesh. For example, when Pastor Mike was preaching in Exodus 33 and 34 especially, he read this from Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, 
the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. In fact, we could say that everything after the fall is grace. Every good thing is a result of God's grace. But God's grace found its fullest expression in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as, God, as John could say in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him know. So Paul could say that mankind did not fully know the grace of God until it appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. Now this is something that is so familiar to us, it's easy to take it for granted. It's easy to forget that most of the world doesn't know that the grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ. Therefore, they're still trying, if they believe in God, to earn their way to forgiveness, to acceptance. They're still fumbling in the dark. That's why we have the responsibility to share the good news with our neighbors, both near and far. What if you had never heard that there is grace from God? That grace has appeared in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? What if there truly was no incarnation of Christ and thus no salvation? I mentioned earlier that um, one of the things I like about Christmas time are some of the movies, Christmas movies. Uh, one of my favorite, perhaps my favorite, is It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, y'all familiar with that? Uh, many of you are. And uh, I know in my family, we're kind of split. I, some like it and some aren't crazy about it. But when I think about that family, I think about, I mean, think about that, uh, that movie. For those of you who don't know, it's based around uh, a man by the name of George Bailey who inherits a savings and loan. And uh, from his father, he doesn't really want the job, but, but he gets it. Somebody has to do it because so many people in the town are dependent on this savings and loan. Well, a crisis erupts when some money goes missing from the savings and loan, and George finds himself in, in, a, in a real pickle, and he gets so despondent that he wishes he was never born. And so the angel second class, Clarence, uh, which this is a tangent, but just a word, Please get your theology from Scripture, not from movies or TV shows. Uh, we don't die and become angels, all right? That's never going to happen. It's two different beings, all right? Anyway, so Clarence grants this wish that George has chosen what it would be like if he had never been born, and it was awful. The town, everybody was affected by this. I think about that. I think, what if there was no person of grace, no incarnation? What would life be like? It would be hopeless for us. We would be like those who've never heard of the gospel of Christ. The world may live and celebrate Christmas as if Jesus has not been born. But we need to live every day 
in the light of and dependent on the grace of God that has appeared in our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So come, all you unfaithful. Come, weak and unstable. See what your God has done. Christ is born. He is the person of grace. But then we see the purpose of grace. And for this, we need to read the entire passage again, but we're going to focus really on on the last part of the passage. Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul here reveals to us the purpose of grace, why Christ came into the world. And he says, really, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That is, for all kinds of people, for young, for old, for rich, for poor, for slaves, for free, for those in the United States, for those all around the world. There is one name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Jesus came so that, those, so that sinners might have hope, might be redeemed from lawlessness and might be purified as a people for his own possession. We see two aspects of what God's grace in Christ does, two broad aspects. The first is that he redeems us from all lawlessness. He he came to purchase us from bondage to sin. We were enslaved to sin before Christ came. We were, in many respects, willing slaves. Not always, but but we were slaves to sin, unable to free ourselves. Paul writes in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we were unable to do anything about it. And so Christ came to free us, to redeem us, to purchase us, from our sins by his death and resurrection. Paul deals with this in considerable detail in Romans chapter 6, but I just want to read part of what he writes there. Romans 6, he writes this, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness, slaves of God through Christ. He says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. That is to growth in holiness, growth in godliness. God's 
grace in Christ has redeemed us from bondage to sin. We've been freed from that, delivered from that through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's His work. He did it. We trust in what He has done. But also, God's grace and salvation involves an ongoing work of purification. Notice He says, um, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, that is, from all sin, and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. This is not a once-for-all event, this purification. Now, it will be completed when we are with Jesus, when, when He returns. Uh, it will be completed at death, spiritually, but it will be completed totally when Christ returns. Having delivered us from bondage to sin, Jesus is now at work delivering us, not just from the penalty of sin, justification, but from the power of sin, which we call sanctification. The Bible calls sanctification. Salvation is not just a one-time event. Now, justification is, all right? We are, when we put our faith in Christ, we are declared righteous in God's sight, and we receive the Holy Spirit as the, uh, the seal that, that is done. But we are being saved from the power of sin. We are progressively, progressively becoming like the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, the Apostle Paul addresses this in Ephesians 5 when he gives husbands instructions for marriage. He gives instructions both husbands and wives, but specifically to husbands, he writes this, Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sound like familiar language? Christ gave himself? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. God's salvation, His grace in salvation involves both redemption and purification, justification and sanctification. And we need to make sure that we understand and, and emphasize both in our lives. There are some who so emphasize the once-for-all aspect of our redemption from sin that they treat the ongoing work of grace as something nice but not necessary. It, I mean, we should grow, but if you don't, you know, you're still once saved, always saved, right? That's not what that means. That's not what eternal security is all about. We need to be reminded that the Bible says we are to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's Hebrews 12, 14. Many years ago, uh, a good friend of mine asked me to speak to his youth group. He was a youth minister, and he asked me to speak on any passage that I chose. He was asking other friends who were uh, either ministers or ministerial students uh, to do that. I was a, a student at that time. And so I, I read the passage from Romans chapter 6, 
basically dealt with most of that chapter and emphasized that salvation is both uh, a once-for-all event, but also it results in an ongoing walk as we seek to surrender to the Lord, as we seek to be obedient. And I really, really emphasized that this matter of walking in obedience to Christ. Not, at, not to be saved, but really in, as the evidence that we are saved, that we are in Christ. Evidently, this was something that this youth group wasn't, wasn't familiar with because one of the uh, leaders of the group afterwards talked to my friend who was a youth minister. She said, you know, that's, that's not Baptist. <laughs> and, and my friend said, it's the Bible. <laughs> uh, I have encountered people who are trusting in the fact that when they were six or eight or ten or whatever, they prayed a prayer. Their lives are not demonstrating any pursuit of holiness today. They couldn't care less. They're not in anybody's church. They're not walking with the Lord. But they think they are saved. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that we are redeemed. Yes, we have been redeemed, but Christ is purifying us. It is an ongoing process. But let me just say this. Let's make sure we don't put the cart before the horse, all right? Justification comes before sanctification, and we don't trust in our sanctification for our acceptance with God, all right? We trust in what Christ has done. On the cross. The ground of our salvation is the finished work of Christ in his death and resurrection. If we're in Christ and have been born again, we will have a sensitive conscience towards sin. So there may be times when we sin that we wonder, how can I be saved and do that? You ever been there? I have. But our holiness. Our purification can never be the basis of our salvation. That's not what we trust in. That's an ongoing process, and it's not a straight line. It's often three steps forward and two steps back. That's, that's how it feels. The ground, the basis of our salvation is what Jesus has done, not what we do or don't do. But there, there will be both if we know Christ. There will be trust in what he has done. He has redeemed us. But there will also be evidence that he is purifying us. Which leads to the third point, the practice of grace. What does this purifying look like? What does it look like in our lives on a daily basis? Well, I believe that's what Paul is addressing here in verse 12. Let me read verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We are presently in this age, that is until the Lord returns or until we go to meet Him. Um, grace is training us in two directions. The word for training may be translated differently depending upon the translation that you're using. But it's a difficult word 
to translate with just one word. But I think training is good. It can mean teaching, instructing, uh, disciplining. Uh, it, it's, it's the word that, that has a wide range of meanings. But I think training is a good one. It's training us in two ways, two directions. One is negative. That is to say no to some things. Denouncing lawlessness and worldly passions. Denouncing or renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions. That means there are some things that, as believers, we say no to. Some things we are to not do as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then the flip side is, there are some things that we are to pursue, some things that we are to seek to do. And that is, we are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. I don't think you need a whole lot of exposition about what either of those mean, right? We know what ungodliness and worldly passions look like, right? It's disregard for God and the things of God. It's, it's looking at what God says in His Word and saying, I'll go a different way. You know? it, it's choosing to ignore or reject God's clear instructions in His Word. And, and they're all over. There are passages that explain how we are to live and how we are not to live. I think for the most part, the Holy Spirit, taking the Word of God, instructs us, trains us on what we shouldn't do and what we should do. Now, sometimes there are decisions that we're not sure about, and we just trust the Lord, and we do the best we can. But one of the things that we need to be careful about, especially when it comes to decisions that we make in our lives to renounce ungodliness and to pursue godliness. All right? And that is our application of what that means may be different from someone else's. All right? There may be situations where we choose certain practices and others don't. I'm not, ta- I'm not addressing things that are clearly told us in Scripture, do or don't do. For example, I'm not talking about there's an option of whether or not you commit adultery, all right? I'm not ta- or, or lust, okay? I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about whether it's, it's ever right to steal or not. Okay, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is kind of what Paul addresses in Romans 14, where there were those who had different opinions about certain foods, certain, um, certain days that they observed. Here's what Paul writes. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed welcomed him. 
Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, I'm just going to get real personal here, all right? Just a, a, a personal confession, all right? I was raised in the days when Southern Baptist hymnals had a church covenant glued to the, in the front of them. And a bit, one of the statements in that covenant had to do with abstaining from the, I don't remember the exact word, but from the sale or use of alcohol, all right? Beverage alcohol, all right? So I, that's how I was raised. And so I've been a teetotaler all my life and will be till the day I die. That's, that's, that's just the way I was raised. However, I can't find in the Bible that it's a sin to drink. Now, frankly, it bothers me <laughs> sometimes that people that I love have chosen that, but, but that's on me, all right? I cannot make my choice to refrain from drinking, absolutely it not passing my lips, making that a standard of righteousness for others. Now, I've done it, but it was wrong, and it is wrong. There are other decisions like that. My grandmother just about disowned our family when my parents bought my brother a pool table for his 16th birthday. Because she was raised in a time when you only play pool in a pool hall where there's drinking and gambling and all sorts of ungodly stuff in her mind. So we are good at making choices, which is great for yourself, and saying, in my pursuit of holiness, I can't do this. Others may, I cannot. All right? But we need to be careful not to make that a standard for others. On the other hand, we're good at self-deception, all right? We still battle the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? We are not completely redeemed in terms of we're not completely sanctified, right? So it's easy to excuse things, even things that the Bible says we need to avoid. That's why we need to know God's Word. That's why we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit as He speaks and works in our lives. And that's why also, let me just say, we need the church. That's why we need brothers and sisters in Christ to help us keep our commitments, to walk in holiness. We are called to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly in the present age. Let me just say, there's another word I want to focus on. At the beginning of verse 13, Paul says, waiting. <laughs> We're to do this until Jesus comes or until we go to meet him waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus has come, that's referring to the second coming of Christ. Um, 
you know, Paul lived in the light of the fact that the Lord could return any time. That was his hope. That was his, his desire. And Christians have been living that way for 2,000 years now, almost. All right? And sometimes it seems like the Lord's never going to return. You ever feel that way? Sometimes we want, I mean, it has been a long time. But I just need to, re, to remind us what Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as, is as one day. So really, it's not yet been two days since the ascension of Christ, all right, in God's economy. So we need to wait. We need to, be, we need to wait patiently. And while we are waiting, we need to keep on keeping on. We Wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory and great God of our, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a day that will be. But until then, we persevere. We, cope, we keep on keeping on. We wait. And this is a motivation and incentive, an incentive to holy living. In 1 John 3, 2 and 3, John writes this, Beloved, now we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. That's verse 2. Then verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself, as He is pure. The prospect that at the return of Christ, we're going to be like Jesus should be an incentive to live a holy life, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to strive to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In Philippians 1.6, Paul writes, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And guess what? It's going to take that long. We will not be complete until Christ returns. We wait, not passively, but actively, by God's grace, renouncing wickedness, ungodliness, and seeking holiness. Sometimes we get tired. Sometimes we're tempted maybe to slack off to back off a little bit, to not be so zealous for good works that Paul writes about here. But we need to keep on walking. I was in college in the 70s, in the 1970s, uh, not 1870s. I know it's hard to believe that I'm that old, but uh, during that time, there was a a Christian group, Christian band called Dogwood. They were kind of a folksy type band. Uh, you, you may or may not have ever heard of them. But they had a song that I really liked, and it was entitled, Keep on Walking. And some of the words are, go like this. Are you weary in well-doing, walking on the road to New Jerusalem? And are you hoping and praying, looking any minute for the Lord to come? And do you see a lot of pleasant-looking places where you might sit down and take a rest? Well, if you do, take a look at all the faces there. Their sadness 
will tell you that it's best to keep on walking. You don't know how far you've come. Keep on walking. For all you know, it may be done. And the Father may be standing up right now to give the call and end it all. So keep on walking. So that's what we need to do. We need to keep on walking. Keep on renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions and living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the gift of your word. And we thank you for the gift of grace that has appeared in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that that grace is presently training us to renounce lawlessness, ungodliness, and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age as we wait for the appearing, the blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Lord, may that be us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.